0: did not, why don't you just raise your hand up and ushers will come by and distribute those. Anybody? One over here. Over there. Great. Just keep them up until you get them. Uh, The last few weeks, Pastor John has enjoyed sharing different fish stories with all of us, and I think that's one of the requirements that I, I had to come and bring a fish story. So I brought one. Hopefully I'll kind of join in on the fun. So in 1975, a young woman near the New England tourist town of Amity Island was attacked and killed by a shark while she was out swimming. The police chief, Martin Brody, wanted to close all the beaches, but the mayor overruled him, thinking the town would be crippled by the loss of tourist revenue ichthyologist Matt Hooper and grizzled ship captain Quint offered to help Brody capture the killer beast and the trio engaged in an epic battle of man versus nature. In their final conflict, Quint harpoons the great white shark, but the shark still manages to ram the boat and the stern begins to submerge. Quint slips on the wet deck, sliding right into the shark's great jaws and is pulled underwater to his death. However, just as the shark is about to chomp on a heroic police chief, the harpoon-inflicted wounds prove too much, and the great beast dies in the water. You guys don't know what to make of this. (laughs) That's okay. I'm just here having fun. (laughs) Let's review where we left off. In chapter 1, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and announce his judgment on it. And if you remember from the last couple of lessons Nineveh is part of the Assyrian Empire and Jonah hates the Assyrians. They're evil people doing lots of atrocities. So what does Jonah do? He runs. He gets on a ship to Tarshish, completely in the opposite direction. And this is where we find God in his love pursuing Jonah. He sends a storm on the sea and puts all the men and Jonah on the ship in great danger. And at Jonah's direction, the sailors reluctantly throw him overboard. And last week in chapter 2, we found Jonah sinking down to the bottom of the ocean. And right when it's about to be the end, God saves a fish. He sends a fish to save him. And it was there in the fish's belly for three days that Jonah finally hits rock bottom and repenting and turning back to God. And over the last few weeks, we've heard a number of you just share how much of an impact this series has had on you. And I wonder if it's because there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. Maybe we've run from God, or maybe we're running right now, and maybe we're hitting some rocky times, maybe we've hit rock bottom, and even in these moments, we can feel God's Relentless love pursuing us right where we're at, calling us home. He's good, isn't he? Well, today our story continues. We're gonna start at the end of chapter two, right into verse ten, which is the the last of it. it. Says the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. Now there are other translations that say it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Which is a great picture. And Jonah comes out with all this spew and nastiness. Makes you wonder what he was like when he went to Nineveh, just covered in fish vomit. What a great picture that is. Never thought of that, did you? (laughs) But we're going to read chapter 3 together. And just to show respect and honor for the word of God, why don't we stand up as we do that, if you're able... And let's read together from verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time, Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh, and deliver the message I have given you. This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet, God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. Thank you. You may be seated. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back through this chapter and just look at some key observations from this passage. And you guys can help me in making some of those as we look at the text. We'll start from verses 1 and 2. So, verses 1 and 2. What do we see? What, do you, what are we seeing here? Spoke again. Yeah, God spoke again. What does He say? Get up and go. Up and go. Did God's plans change? They did not. They stayed the same. Even after all of this, God sends him, Jonah runs, he flees, he gets thrown over the edge, sucked up by a fish, vomited onto the land, and God's plans remain the same. Go to Nineveh and tell them this message. So we look at verses 3 and 4. What do we see as Jonah's response? He obeyed, didn't he? He obeyed. He didn't want to get sucked up in a fish again. And did you notice what kind of message Jonah preaches? Is it? Destruction. In 40 days, God is going to destroy you. It's kind of a nice picture, isn't it? You kind of think, you imagine Jonah to come in here and preach this message of repentance. Repent and God will save you. But it doesn't look like that's what happened. And you almost get the idea of of a street preacher standing in the city of like downtown Milwaukee or in Chicago and telling everybody, you're going to hell! Die, sinners! It's not a very pleasant picture, right? And you kind of wonder if if Jonah really hated these people so much. He might actually enjoy doing this. This could be fun, right? You're going to die and I don't even care. You deserve it! So this is the kind of message that he preaches. Yet in verse 5, what happens? Verse 5, they believed. They declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. So the revival happens. The people repent. They humble themselves. And if we look at verses 6 through 8, it shows more detail. As the king of Nineveh hears this and he steps down and he dresses himself in burlap and he issues this edict all throughout the city, no one, not even the animals, they all have to go on to fast and show their mourning. Now, does this strike anybody as odd? Isn't that kind of weird? Now, who here thinks that you could go into downtown Sheboygan on a Saturday morning, maybe in the summer when there's a farmer's market, lots of people around, and start screaming at them, you're all going to hell, sinners! And all of a sudden, they're just going to get on their knees and repent and pray out to God. Anybody? So what happened? Why does this happen here? What's that? Maybe? But do you think just some lunatic and fish guts coming out on the water is gonna give that message that that's gonna like cause you to repent? It's an interesting thought. It's an interesting thought. And here's, let's take a quick detour. Assyria believed in a plurality of gods. Okay? Um, They were open to other deities. And according to a commentary by John Walton, he said, when Assyrian kings received prophecies, they took them seriously whether the prophet was known or not, or whether the deity was known or not. They believed in an open system. So in which any number of gods could be active and powerful. So what would happen is, if someone came in with a message, they would often go to their own diviner and determine if this is really true or not. So this is probably what they did in Nineveh in this case. And what do you think probably happened? Probably prove that the message that Jonah was preaching was true, Right? And isn't it interesting that God still speaks to us in ways that we can understand even if we don't always do things the right way. God often meets us where we're at. And so in verse 9 we see that Assyria repents. And why did they? They said perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his anger. And again Jonah's message did not seem to include any kind of idea that this was even possible. But they said perhaps he might. And then, if we look at verse 10, this is kind of an interesting passage. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. Does God change his mind? He relents. Why does it say change his mind here? Some passages say relented, but the word changes mind in Hebrew is the same one that is used in other passages. So, a little bit of story. This verse is actually one of the main passages in scripture that generates discussion on whether or not God can change his mind. In the ancient Near East, and probably even in a lot of cultures today, the gods are believed to be kind of erratic. erratic and, and they can be appeased through different rituals or different things that people do in order to soothe their wrath. But we do find in scripture that God cannot change his mind. And if we look at other passages like Numbers twenty-three, nineteen, which uses the same verbiage, it says, God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not a human, so he does not change his mind. It's stated again in 1 Samuel fifteen, twenty-nine, And he who is the glory of Israel will not lie, nor will he change his mind. For he is not human, that he should change his mind. So it, it's kind of interesting that Jonah uses this verbiage. But God's action to postpone judgment here is not because he can be manipulated. God cannot be manipulated. If we're honest, how many of us might say that we've tried to manipulate God just a little bit? Yeah. I'm not the only one. That's good. I was afraid I'd be standing here all by myself. Say, God, I'm going to be a little bit better this week. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray a little more. And just please do this for me. Right? Right? but God cannot be manipulated. And his response here in Nineveh is simply a demonstration of his compassion. And it's the same idea that we find in Second Chronicles 7.14. And a lot of us are familiar with this passage. It says, "'If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land.'" God is a compassionate God, and when people repent, when they turn from their wickedness and turn to God, his natural response is to have mercy and show compassion. And we see that time and time again in the Bible. So what can we take away from this, from this chapter? I've got a few points. And before I introduce my first one, I want you to know, I don't want you to feel bad. I've had training education, and biblical studies. So if my insights are, you know, supreme over what you may have found, that's okay. It's okay. Not everybody can get into this great depth of insight that I have. Okay? So don't feel bad if you didn't get this. Okay? All right. So number one, Jonah heard God. Is that impressive? sometimes I just amaze myself with my insights but what what do we do with this and here's the question I might have for us do we hear God do we hear God and I know a lot of us might say yes we hear him God speaks to us through his word and yes he does but do you believe that God speaks to you personally do you believe that he speaks to you in your situations and in your circumstances? And, and this is where things can sometimes get a little interesting because on one hand we'll say we do and collectively we do, we believe that he does and it's at this head nod and we would all agree with that. But then when it comes right down to it, we might privately believe something else. We might believe that God loves us and he loved the world so much that he gave his son for us but in the middle of it, when we're by ourselves and we're alone, we're thinking, I don't think God can really love me. Or we might think that God speaks to everybody and he loves everybody so much, but he's too busy to deal with my problems, so I'm not even going to bother him with that. Right? Do you know what I'm saying? Sometimes there's a disconnect from what we know up here to what we really believe and I think we need to pay attention to those kinds of things because God often wants to speak into that. He wants to reveal himself to us because what we really believe, the things that we believe in our gut, sometimes we're not even aware of them, those are what often determines our responses and our actions. Do we listen Do we listen for Jesus' voice? That was about 15 seconds worth of silence, and it was probably a little uncomfortable, wasn't it? Check out what Jesus said in John chapter 10. He says, my sheep listen to my voice. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Let me be honest with you. This is pretty new to me. Um, I'm just learning... Now, really how to do this because my default has always been to do and I never really believed that I could hear personally from God I didn't not really at a personal level I knew scripture, I knew things that I should do and I always had this idea that I needed to do things because when I tried to, to listen when I tried to make space for that, honestly it, it felt like a waste of time and it was frustrating. Like, why am I even doing this? This is a waste of time. I should be spending time actually doing something that's productive. And if I wasn't doing things for Jesus, then I was being lazy. And so I'd keep myself busy and doing things for Jesus, and I got to be really good at it. I still am really good at it. That's still my default. But the last couple of months, I'm beginning to ask myself, is this what God really wants? Does he want us just to be busy doing stuff? Or does he want us to listen to what he is saying to us? And I wonder how many of us, if we're being honest, might say that we're too busy to hear from God. Do we allow room to hear? Because most of us are uncomfortable with silence. That 15 seconds just before it seemed like an eternity, right? We're uncomfortable with it. We don't know what to do with it. And why is that? Maybe we're running. Maybe we're running from God. Maybe we found that God is trying to get our attention and, and we're, we're running from, from the shame of some sin that he wants to speak to us about. Or maybe we're running from worry or anxiety or anger or bitterness. Or maybe we don't want to deal with a particular situation that he wants us to address. And so we're running. We're always on the go, always doing something. And even when we're in one place, for a long period of time we'll have the TV on we'll have the radio on you might even fall asleep to the TV at night or have the radio going on all night just so we don't have to listen to the silence and deal with what God is trying to bring to our attention Jonah heard God and I think sometimes we get the idea that God only speaks to certain people that they're super spiritual you know those people over there that are freaky and crazy and God knows I don't want to have any part of them Right? So God speaks to them but he might not speak to me. And we tend to think that the prophets are these super spiritual people that God clearly spoke to in an audible voice or that he spoke to from a fiery bush booming from this bush. But is that always the case? Let's take a look at Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. We read a story of God speaking to Elijah and Elijah's hiding in a cave and God says, Go out, And stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And I wonder sometimes why this scripture is here. Maybe we're looking for God in all the wrong places. And maybe we're expecting him to be found with a booming audible voice speaking to us from the sky. But maybe in reality he's trying to speak to us in a soft and gentle whisper. And what about the prophet Jeremiah? I found this interesting. There are 52 chapters in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah speaks oracles against countries and nations. In chapter 32, the Lord speaks to Jeremiah like he does in the rest of the book. But in verses 8 through 10, he actually confirms his word through his cousin And so at the end of Jeremiah 8, uh, verse 8 in chapter 32, Jeremiah Jeremiah writes, then I knew, then I knew that the message I had heard was from the Lord. Because God confirmed that through his cousin. I just thought that was really interesting. Even this great man of God, this prophet, needed a confirmation from God that what he said was actually from him. God used ordinary men to participate in the work he was doing. And when we look at the prophet Jonah, I think it would be fitting to wonder, God, why did you use somebody like him? Why somebody like him? The guy is nothing but a grumpy old man. He's the kind of guy that you avoid at church, always grumbling about everything. And some of you probably have somebody in your mind right now that you avoid here at Southside. Or not. Or not. But you know, maybe it was simply to demonstrate that God uses ordinary people like you and me to be a part of what he is doing right now. Listen to God's word in Jeremiah twenty-nine, thirteen. He says, If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. And in our Western culture, we're not used to having to wait for things. You want it now. You want instant results, instant gratification. I am the king of wanting things right now. I hate waiting for things. Right, hon? Yeah, she was not going to say anything, but I, I am. But I wonder if that can be said in our seeking of God. Can we truly say that we are seeking him wholeheartedly? And maybe we've tried to listen, but we found that it wasn't easy. Maybe it wasn't easy and maybe we've quit and we've given up too soon thinking that God's just not going to speak to us. And from experience, I can say hearing God is probably going to be a struggle. At least initially, it's going to be a struggle. But somebody recently said to me, he said, isn't it better to struggle trying to hear God than to struggle trying to do everything without him? that really spoke to me. So hear God. The second point is clear from the text is that God was at work. God was at work. He was already doing something. He was moving. Jonah simply participated in what God was already doing. So Nineveh repented not because Jonah preached this amazing, incredible message, right? He just said, you guys are going to face judgment. But they repented because God was at work. God is a God of mission, and mission is initiated by God. It's not something that we initiate, but mission is his default posture toward the world that he created and loves. And he is the initiator. He is the one who sets things in motion. So the idea for us is that we don't do things for God. We do things with God. We do things with God. This is his mission, and he invites us to do things with him. So our posture then is the one of discerning where God is at work and then joining him in it. We want to shift our posture from being decision makers to hearing and then doing what God is saying. And this is actually scriptural. Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 5. He says, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees his father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. Has anybody besides me ever struggled with this passage? I like, I try to figure out, like what does this mean? Like Jesus is going down, he's walking on a path to this city and he sees some vision in the sky of God doing something and healing this blind man and, and that's how we see it. But we find in scripture that Jesus finds time to pray and, and he's hearing from God. And in that time he's discerning where God is at work and he joins God in his mission. And I've found myself often getting way ahead of God or doing something that he has no part in whatsoever. And then I ask God to say, like, God, bless this thing that I'm doing. I'm doing it for you. Anybody here with me? But God has no part in it. And if I really want to be effective, I need to slow down and just listen. Because I want to discern where God is at work and actually let him lead me. I do. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds a house, unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. So the question for us is, who is building the house we're working on? Is God building this house? So as, as elders one of the concerns that we have sometimes as we look at a congregation is is we see that people are so busy. They're so busy. They have no margin. And that just follows our culture, right? Everybody's busy and doing so much stuff. And sometimes, uh, like, it's hard because we're doing a lot of good things. We're doing a lot of good things, but are they necessarily God things? Is that what he wants? Is that what he wants? Because sometimes we get this idea that we are really super spiritual if we're really busy and we're godly if we're always doing something. And I think it's almost an area of pride where, like, someone will come up and say, "Hey, how you doing?" And say, oh man, I'm busy, so busy, I'm tired. But you know, God is working; He's doing stuff. you, You know, just kind of patting myself on the back. It becomes a badge of honor, and I am the chief of sinners in this trying to reset. Maybe I'm not alone. Because Christian busyness does not produce kingdom advancement. So if we want to live a life on mission with God, we start by discerning where God is at work and then joining Him in what He is already doing. Discern where He's at work and then join Him. And lastly, this is important. The results are up to God. The results are up to God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. So notice the first part. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. Who initiated that work? God did. God did. So Paul had a part, Apollos had a part. They were participating in what God was doing. But notice whose job it is to make it grow. It's God's. It's not our responsibility whether or not the work succeeds. God puts it on himself. He owns it. He owns it. And isn't that freeing? Isn't that freeing? So he might ask us to do something, but the results that come out of it, it it's not up to us. It's all God. It's all God. He owns it. And that is the gospel. That is the good news. It doesn't, now, this doesn't give us a license to be lazy. It doesn't allow us not to do our part. We're working with God, but the results are his. And the good news of this is that we don't have to be on this constant cycle of trying to produce all the time, of trying to to work harder, to doing more, to being better, and producing results because it lifts a burden that we just can't bear. And eventually we get tired and worn out, and we quit. And then we start to feel guilty again. So like, oh, I gotta get back on this. I gotta do this. So we try harder, and we do more. We try to be better people work out our own sanctification, right? Not letting God do it and we try to produce results and then it gets tired, it's too much and we quit. The results aren't up to us. God simply asks us to join him where he is working. And this involves a posture of listening and discerning where he's at work and then leaving the results up to him. God is working. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to put those three points up again. My profound insight. <laughs> Jonah heard God. God is at work. The results are up to him. And here's, here's the deal. I believe that God is speaking right now. And what I'd like to do is just to create a little bit of space and tend to what God might be doing right now in this moment. So as I've shared, I believe God has put his finger on something. He's brought up something in your life. who wants to bring it to your attention. And maybe, maybe he's asking you to create some space this week so that he can speak into your situation. Maybe he just wants to affirm you. Maybe he's showing you that you've enslaved yourself by trying to work your way trying to work your way into his grace, and you've put yourself in religious bondage. And he wants to bring you freedom. Maybe he wants to take away the burden that you've put on yourself of always having to produce. And he wants to say, let me take that from you. That's my job. I believe God's offering an invitation to us today. What is he impressing on you right now? Where is this intersecting in your life right now? So what we're going to do is we're going to take just a couple of minutes and we're going to jot down a couple things that God might be bringing to our attention. And then our assignment this week is to create some space and allow God to speak into that. So you don't get to just leave here and not do anything. You have an assignment to do. So can we allow a couple minutes to do that? Right.